I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. And from the first scan, um, the doctor kind of looked at her and said, you know, this needs to be scanned. This is serious. Um, And said, you know, she has cancer. And it's like one of those things where at 11 years old and me being the mother of an 11-year-old, it's like that's the last thing I would have ever thought it would be. Janice Smith-Gomez is an accomplished executive with Johnson & Johnson, Vice President of Global Brand Experience for J&J Medical Devices Companies. She has an incredible legacy of success by several relatives, including her grandmother, Lucy Orintha Oxley, who was the first person of color to ever receive a medical degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. She was also the only woman and only African-American in her graduating class of 1936. Her great-grandfather was the first African-American to have graduated from the Harvard University Divinity School in 1909. Janice's daughter's serious health diagnosis changed her perspective on her career and family. After this health diagnosis, she made changes in her life as well as her career, including the decision to move from J&J's consumer products to medical devices. This is a powerful podcast with an accomplished Johnson & Johnson executive. Joining me today on Leading She is Janice Smith-Gomez, an executive with Johnson & Johnson, Vice President of Global Brand Experience for Johnson & Johnson Medical Devices Companies. Welcome to Leading She, Janice. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm so thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here as a guest. I'm going to take a minute and go over your experience and background. Uh, Janice has been with the company for 15 years. She is a visionary executive and marketing strategist. She has held numerous marketing executive roles at J&J, including Vice President of U.S. Marketing and Contract Sales for Ethicon U.S., leading 65 marketers as well as 125 contract sales reps. She was Vice President of Marketing for U.S. skincare brands, including Aveeno, Rock, Clean & Clear, and Lubriderm, as well as Vice President of U.S. Marketing for McNeil Nutritionals. Janice has also been a venture leader with Johnson & Johnson Development Corporation, leading a scientific and operations team that created a multi-million dollar technology platform still in the marketplace today. Prior to joining J&J, Janice rose the ranks as a food and beverage marketing specialist and brand builder with companies like Master Foods, which is Mars and M&M's, Kraft Foods, and PepsiCo. She started her career in consulting at Booz Allen Hamilton and interned at Procter & Gamble, based here in Cincinnati. Janice holds a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Chicago and an MBA in Marketing and Business Policy from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. She currently lives in South Orange, New Jersey with her husband, Todd, married for 26 years. She has a 20-year-old daughter, Anna, who is a junior at Vanderbilt University. So welcome again, Janice. Thank you again, Susan. Really happy to be with you. Yeah. Great, uh, great career. Um, So impressive. Take a minute. uh, Give us any highlights about your career. Uh, tell Tell us what you do now with Johnson & Johnson. 
So today, um, I am the Vice President of Global Brand Experiences for Johnson & Johnson Medical Devices Companies. That's one of the three sectors of Johnson & Johnson. We have our Janssen Pharmaceuticals and Consumer Health and then Medical Devices. Um, so in my role, I'm responsible for our sector narrative and our brand identity and voice. I work really closely with our branding uh, leaders from our franchises, and those franchises include Depucentes and Orthopedics, Ethicon and General Surgery, uh, Saranovis and Stroke, Biosense Webster and AFib, and Johnson & Johnson Vision, along with our Johnson & Johnson Institute, which is our professional training um, facility. And um, I work very closely with marketers, with communications um, and public affairs, um, as well as our change management group. And um, all of those that allow us to really inspire our 70,000 employees across medical devices in order to tell our stories out there in the marketplace. Um, and in addition to that, I actually am part of the Johnson & Johnson Master Brand Core Team. So how, again, Johnson & Johnson Medical Devices can lift up our enterprise of Johnson & Johnson and vice versa, really looking at our, our best practices, our brand reputation, and how we really delight all of our stakeholders. So mm. um, as a part of that um, as well, I'm, I'm a big DE&I leader um, within Johnson & Johnson and um, really passionate about identifying and developing talent as well. Fantastic. Yes, we're going to get into the DEI passion. I have the same same passion. I'm on my company's diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. So I've loved doing that. So we're going to talk about that Great. as well. Um, talk about your background. I understand you were born in Cincinnati, uh, just coincidentally, and grew up in Indianapolis, and you've lived a number of places. Uh, talk about your background. So yes, I, I was born in Cincinnati, and both my mother and my father are from Cincinnati. So that's still very much home for me. Um, uh, my dad was actually a pediatric radiologist and was in the Air Force. So the first several years of my life, we lived overseas. We lived in Ankara, Turkey on the Air Force base there. And then um, when he was out of the service, we moved to Basel, Switzerland before coming back to the United States. So, um, you know, grew up uh, learning different languages, Turkish and German and Basel. Deutsch and those sorts of things um, before coming back here. And as I said, really spent um, my time in Indianapolis um, through kindergarten through 12th grade um, and just a little bit of time in Boston when my dad was doing a sabbatical um, at Mass General and, and Harvard there. And I did spend every summer on Martha's Vineyard. That was where my mom's family um, summered. And so we still continue to do that. And I'm really blessed to have a house there and, and enjoy family time mm -hmm. there. Yeah, it's beautiful there. I've been there with my family when my daughter was small. I remember Mad Martha's ice cream. Still there. Is it still, still there? there. Absolutely. <laughs> very good ice cream. Very good ice very cream. Not, not graters in Cincinnati, but still very good. <laughs> very good ice cream. Um, your family now, you've been married a long time. Talk about your husband, Todd. You have a daughter uh, who is a junior at Vanderbilt. What is she studying? Sure. So um, my husband and I have been married for 26 years. I'm really proud of that. I think we are one of those um, couples who always had, you know, that dual income um, going at the same time. And so figuring out how to make sure that both of us were successful in our careers, but also, you know, raising a really smart, intelligent, fabulous girl named Anna, who, as you said, is a junior at Vanderbilt. She's studying sociology and minoring in business with a real passion in, in sports management. 
student. Um, she is the student manager of the Vanderbilt girls basketball team and incredibly proud of that. She sings acapella um, in, a, in an acapella group uh, called Melanated. Um, she's just an all around great girl. Mm. You should be proud. That's wonderful. Um, you have an experience with your daughter um, and her health, which I think is um, really relevant to your career experience. She was diagnosed with cancer, I understand, at 11 years old. Yes. And um, I have a couple of quotes here from you, which are really impactful. Um, you say, when I heard the devastating news, my focus instantly shifted to my family and my mission became keeping my daughter alive and healthy. It was crystal clear to me that I needed to be more family-oriented. I was first and foremost Anna's mom, Todd's wife, twin sister to Anne, and then a Johnson & Johnson associate. When I reflect on who I was before Anna's diagnosis, I realized that I was a human doing rather than a human being. My work was still very important to me and I loved it, but I needed to direct my mental energy, inner strength, and spiritual focus to getting myself and my family through this time. So talk about what happened and what, what it changed for you and um, how did it affect your perspective on career and family? Sure. So, you know, um, it's interesting you asked me about how I grew up. I grew up in a family that was incredibly tight-knit and um, and very supportive and was the, the type of family that said you could be whatever you wanted to be and that excellence was expected and you served others and they had an incredible work ethic. And if you worked hard, you know, that performance would be valued and recognized. And so, um, you know, I was very proud of my family um, legacy and really gave me the confidence and freedom to, to go out and work and be whomever I wanted to be and be that lifelong learner. And so I was, you know, in my career, having a fantastic time, rising the ranks um, of, of the company. Um, and frankly, I was really at a time where I was on the cusp of getting my my dream job, um, literally on the cusp. I was interviewing for this job that I had always wanted. It was a global role. I just knew that, you know, it was meant for me. And um, that same week I was interviewing, my daughter actually started getting a bump on her face. And, um, and, and I literally was like, what is that? She's 11 years old. I think she's too young for that to be a zit, but maybe it is, or maybe it's something that she's allergic to. And so, of course, we went to the doctor and from the first scan, um, the doctor kind of looked at her and said, you know, this needs to be scanned. This is serious um, and said, you know, she has cancer. And mm. it's like one of those things where at 11 years old and me being the mother of 11 year old, it's like that's the last thing I would have ever thought it would be. And so um, and that's what it was. And so the week that I was um, um, offered this, my dream job was the week my daughter was diagnosed wow. with cancer. And so for me, it was really all about saying, you know, kind of looking in the mirror and, and doing some self-reflection, but it was actually quite quick to say the real dream job for me is to be the best mother I can be to Anna at this mm. point in time. And my family is getting ready to go through a battle of a lifetime that we never expected. When your daughter has cancer, you all have cancer. You know, we always say if if I could have taken that cancer from her, I certainly would have, um, but I couldn't. And so we were going to battle with her. And so I, of course, turned down that role. And mm. really, that was the pivot in my life where I wasn't um, a, a Johnson & Johnson employee or a worker first and everything else follows. It was really, as you said, Susan, so I, I really was a mom first, mm -hmm. a wife first. I went back to that family first orientation that I had really grown up with. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I've, I've never looked back from that. I have not regretted that. And um, Anna has, of course, battled. She is a, a warrior girl and she is healthy now and in remission, not declared cancer-free quite yet, even though it's been about eight years. She mm -hmm. still has to get to 10 years. But um, I have really um, valued the time with her and know kind of my my place mm -hmm. um, first and foremost. Yeah. So it was a skin cancer and was it had it progressed in her lymph nodes or how? Yeah, it was actually Hodgkin lymphoma. It wasn't okay. skin cancer. Oh, I it see. ended up being Hodgkin lymphoma. And I so see. that's what um that's what she battled. She did have um surgery to have the tumor removed and then she went through several rounds of, of chemotherapy, which is, wow. you know, again, quite um quite a journey. Um we were, you know, lucky to catch it early. We were lucky that she was able to battle that during the summer. She wasn't out of school for a full year, only about a semester. And and her school was wonderful. She actually had a robot that would go to school for her. So she was able oh. to stay in class and things wow. like that. So it was, um, it's amazing what technology can do. And frankly, what health and, and surgeons and, you know, again, science does now around mm -hmm. curing cancer. And it frankly changed my, my, um, my trajectory in my career. I had really been a food and beverage specialist. I was in skincare and beauty. And at that point really made the decision that I really wanted to move over to the medical devices side of our business because I just so valued and saw up close um, surgeons saving lives. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was really yeah. meaningful to me. So it shifted your really your focus within your company, uh, where you went from skincare to more of a medical kind of um, focus after your daughter was diagnosed. Wow. Yeah, that's correct. I went on from the consumer health side over to the medical devices mm -hmm. side, and that's where I've been mm -hmm. um, since that time, mm -hmm. really working with healthcare professionals and surgeons, mm -hmm. patients and caregivers as, as someone who's kind of gone through it personally. Mm -hmm. well, you, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was... Uh, a turning point and there was a fork in the road, you know, for you career-wise and family-wise. And it was both, you know, you were looking at it saying, I'm going to focus on Anna, my family, her health, and not take this global position. Yet your your your, your career continued to be successful, right? I mean, you, you have yes. other roles, you have other, you know, successes at the company. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about Johnson & Johnson. I think that they, um, you know, as part of the credo that we have at Johnson & Johnson, you know, it really talks about first and foremost, the patients and the doctors and nurses, as well as the mothers and fathers who use our products. But the second paragraph of the credo is about our employees and taking care of employees. And then the third paragraph is about really serving in the communities where we live and work. And then lastly, our, our shareholders. But that employee um, focus really allowed me, we have J&J &J Flex programs, um, I also had just an incredible team, what I call kind of my work family that really stepped up and, um, you know, whom I trusted completely and kind of filled the, the holes when I wasn't there and when I needed to be with Anna. Um, and then again, once that was over, they said, okay, what, what, do you, what do you do next? Let's keep moving right. forward. And we've been able to move forward together. So it's a yeah. terrific company. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that she's healthy and, and uh uh, thriving at Vanderbilt, and it sounds like she's got a successful career ahead of her there. Yeah. And uh, um, but uh, I'm going to talk about your family legacy and education. But first, um, I'm curious about resilience. You know that when I'm a mother, I have two, you know, a daughter and a son. And you know, one of the biggest fears I had when they, I still have this fear of them getting sick. You know, and um you know, the last thing you want to hear, and it's so rare, you know, that children have cancer. What, uh, 
what did it teach you about resilience and what did you have to tap into there with this adversity? Yes, it's a great question. And so um, you had even um, mentioned some of it in the quote, but I'm a big believer um, in resilience and that you can teach resilience. And um, as part of Johnson & Johnson, we actually have an area, um, the Human Performance Institute, which is all about the importance of energy management. And it's really about you go to a course. um, It was originally created for um, athletes. This is called our Corporate Athlete Training Program. And it really um, asks you to to look at your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being. And what's your personal mission? It's all about how you get the energy you need to achieve your, your mission. And um, for me, that was something that was really important. And you talked about kind of being a, the human doing versus the human being. It really allowed me to say what my personal mission was for me and my family, that I really needed to live in the moment, be fully present, how do you really make that happen? Um, and uh, and from there, I, I think, you know, it is about self-care first. You have to put your oxygen mask on first before you can help others. And so making sure that I was really at my best, physically energized, emotionally connected, mentally focused, spiritually aware to get Anna through. And that has continued since. I think, you know, women need to really appreciate um, and understand the importance of self-care. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think that's, that's, that allows you to be resilient. The other thing that I've learned in terms of resiliency is I had a great mentor very early on in my career who said, take all of your vacation and then some. <laughs> and, yes. and that is something that I've always followed. I've always taken my vacation and maybe a little bit more, a couple of weekends here and there. Yeah. But I think that's important for you to renew, relax, re-energize, refocus, get perspective so you can kind of keep moving. We're all in incredibly mm-hmm. stressful jobs. Yeah. So you have to relieve that stress. Yeah, you do. And um, I've learned this, you know, kind of the hard way over time. I've had a 42 two-year career, and I often did not take care of myself. And I did, you know, I ate too much. I My weight wasn't good. I had a lot of health problems associated with it. And I lost five years ago, almost 70 pounds, and I've kept that off. Wow. Yeah. That's great, I'll send you Susan. some old photos. <laughs> but wonderful. I was, you know, I was working 14, 15 hours a day, and um, I have some workaholic tendencies. And, you know, so I realized that um, I working harder was not working for me. I had to really scale back how much I was working and enjoy my weekends, enjoy my family, friends, uh, meditation, exercise. I mean, I incorporate all of those things today. Yes. You know. Yes. I do the same. I'm very much, I enjoy walking. You know, it's really funny. I say like, I, I, I don't really like to sweat. I like to glisten, but um, you know, um, so I like walking. Um, I Meditation, I think, you know, just even in the morning in the shower, really standing and making sure you have, you've set your intentions for the day. Um, at the end of the day, really reflecting what I kind of, you know, one of my mottos is, you know, live, learn, and let go. You have to, at the end of the day, just let things go. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd never want to go to bed carrying negative baggage or fear or anxiety. So really letting that go is so important. And mm-hmm. so that's what I kind of practice every day. Yeah, I call it detaching from the outcome. Do everything you need yes. to do, you know, that is expected of you. Do your responsibilities, you know, be disciplined during the day. I mean, a lot of it is, ex- is expected of us as executives. Yes. And uh, but at some point we do have to let go. And really detached yes. from the outcome, I've found. And um, 
it's really revolutionary. I want to point out that Johnson and Johnson to have Human Performance Institute. I think you called yes, it HPI, yes. and I saw the clip on um, that you sent me on it, and it's revolutionary. There are seventy thousand employees. It sounds like with Johnson and Johnson, and um, in our medical devices, yeah, in, in our, our medical, medical devices, devices area. Yep. I see. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we have and about one hundred one hundred thirty thousand employees across Johnson with the Johnson. company. Okay, yeah. got it. And the companies, I think, are coming around to understanding that the employee is not just a worker bee an employee but it's a it's a you know it's a person who has family life has emotional needs and spiritual needs and to respect the whole person would you agree yes absolutely and again as part of johnson and johnson's credo we really talk about the importance of, of the employee and we really have to allow them to fulfill their responsibilities in their family outside of work as well and allow them again to spend time in their communities and we have so many programs that will allow us to do that we we not only talk about we're the largest most broadly based healthcare company but we also want to have the most healthy you know employees um, in the world as well and so allowing folks the, the time to have health and well-being mm -hmm. um, yeah. however you want to define it and however you need to create it for yourself is very important to us fantastic uh, one of the things i see in you is we talk in this podcast with women about you know companies and their values you know do your personal values align with your companies and i see yours as being very aligned with your company is that right very much so, very yeah. much so. You know, yeah. I, I grew up, you were talking before, my great-grandfather was an Episcopal minister, so I grew up in the Episcopal faith. And as I said, my family was all about serving others. There was an incredible um, high work ethic, but very much around high integrity and ethics and mm -hmm. serving others. And mm -hmm. um, I, I really felt, you know, I've had a wonderful career, but when I got to Johnson & Johnson and saw the credo and um, realized our purpose in living that every day, and frankly, a lot of my job today is about driving purpose-driven um, initiatives, really figuring out how we can actually create health for everyone everywhere, um, really serving those um, that, you know, that, that we touch. Um, and Johnson & Johnson touches a billion lives every day. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it very much aligns with, mm -hmm. with who I am and what I stand for. And mm -hmm. um, again, it's great to work for a company that, yeah. that, that aligns so nicely. Yeah, it just feels good. And we know when our values don't match to the companies and uh, it's just a non-starter, you know, for me. Yes. And I think it should be for people that if your personal yes. values don't align with your company's values, that it's, it's really a non-starter. It's so true. And I've, you know, I, I always say to, to folks, really understand a culture before you go to a company. Yes. Um, you know, really under, go there, see how the people react. You know, just as you, when you take your, your child out to, you know, to college visits and you're looking on campus at all the people and you're saying, are they happy? Do they smile? Are they laughing? Do they look like they're stressed? All right. of those sorts of things. That people side is just so important. And, and mm -hmm. that's a lesson I had to learn. I, I did make a mistake once in my career where I went to a company that I didn't quite fully understand the culture until I got there. And it wasn't what I thought it was. Mm. And from that point forward, I was always very intentional about where I, who I wanted to join, why I wanted to join, mm -hmm. really validating that it was the company that I thought it was. Yeah. What, uh, you don't have to name the company, but what, what, uh, how did your values not align with the company values? Um, you know, it was interesting. I think even during the interviewing process, I, I, 
the interview processes were always um, outside of the headquarters, outside of, of the work environment. Hmm. And I that probably should have been a little bit of a red flag, but I didn't take it that way. And then, you know, based on what they were asking me or thinking that I should be doing, kind of setting the expectations, once I got into the company, it was kind of like, yeah, that's what they say, but they don't really believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, you know, that's, that's really interesting. So I always say, test the waters, talk to many people, you know, mm-hmm. make sure that what you're signing up for, especially if it's a new company that you don't know, is really, you know, what what they say they are. And make so. sure, maybe even ask to meet them at the company if that's possible. Absolutely. Oh, you know? of course. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that should have been a red flag, but mm-hmm. it was earlier on in my career and I didn't do that. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a good, a good lesson learned. Yeah. Um, One of the things I am fascinated about, uh, as I did research on you, is that you have an incredible family legacy of valuing higher education. <laughs> and I'm just getting goosebumps here, and I'm going to I'm going to uh, cite some things, uh, some really incredible firsts. You are a woman of color. You're a black woman. Yes, um, yes, your grandmother, Lucy Arintha Oxley, was the yes. only woman in the graduating class of 1936, the only African American, the only person of color to obtain a medical degree from the University of Cincinnati. That is correct. Yeah, I saw the photo. I mean, it's a bunch of white men and her. And it just, I just, you know, I showed my husband last night and I said, oh my God, this is so incredible. That is your your grandmother. That is my grandmother. And I'm so so proud of her. She sometimes is still even featured for Black History Month um, in Cincinnati in February. Mm-hmm. And um, that that picture, um, I think all of my sisters, I'm one of four girls, I think we all have that picture. I think it's mm-hmm. probably one of one of the most inspiring and motivating um, pictures that we have sure. for our family that we're very proud of. Yeah, um, you should be proud. That's wonderful. Your great-grandfather, Edmund Harrison Oxley, was the first black to graduate from Harvard University School of Divinity in 1909. So, yeah, talk about your your family. These, these are, this is, was going on when we would talk about racism today in today's environment, but racism, I mean, back in 1909 or 1936, my God. You yes. Know? Yeah, talk yes, about this. I'm- Absolutely. I'm, I'm very proud um, of, of my family and my family's legacy. I, it, so that makes me really fourth generation, a college educated. So there are not a lot of families out there that can actually say that. But when your great grandfather graduates, you know, in 1909, when your grandmother is the first black and black woman and woman, as you said, to graduate from the University of Cincinnati, I come from a long line of, um, of doctors and teachers yeah. and education was always very, very important. And so so I think that's where I get my lifelong um, love of learning. I think yeah. it's where I get my intellectual curiosity. Um, you know, everybody's, you know, my, and my family said the world is not fair, but with that education and performance, it can be valued and recognized, even if you have to work twice as hard. And so there's definitely, as I said, that work ethic there as well. But mm-hmm. my my father, my mother, uh, my mom was a school teacher as well. Um, so education is so important and it was important when my husband and I had our daughter as well. I've served on um, my daughter's um, school for nine years on the board of trustees, worked my way up to to vice chair of the board. 
really with a mission to to raise brave and brilliant girls. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know you that is so important. Yeah. So important is education. Oh, that's that's wonderful. I just I love it. Um, it's interesting. I'll reflect upon my own story, and we both are successful women executives. I would say have had good careers, successful careers. My story is different. Not many people in my family went to college. So I wonder what you think about, and I, reflecting on my own story, my parents, their parents didn't go to college. And so my mother pushed my sister and me to go to college and said, you know, you need to get a degree. You need to, you know, be successful. She had a successful career without a degree. So, but the, and the pressures were different for me, I think, than you that I was expected to go to college, but I didn't have this legacy of people going to college. So I think the pressure on me maybe have might have been anything I do is okay. Uh, but for you, I think, <laughs> I think for you, it's kind of like, all right, Janice, you know, get ready because you've got family that expect a lot of you. Yes. I mean, as I said, it was, you know, excellence is expected. I mean, you know, the, the, it was expect success, you know, I mean, that is what it was. And you settled for more, it, you know, it was, what do you mean you're bringing home an A minus? It was very much a, you know, an A and yeah. only an A was acceptable. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, that definitely leads, I think, you know, we can talk at some point about it leads to kind of, you know, this striving for perfection. And, mm -hmm. you know, I definitely had to learn that it's not about perfection. It really is about, even when you talk about excellence, it really is about bringing your best self. As, as you said earlier, it is really about having your best day, doing your best every day, but it's not about perfection. But mm -hmm. I will also say, you know, my family, that was on my mother's side, my father's side. Um, his parents uh, were not college educated. I'm just as proud as them. My, my paternal grandmother actually was a seamstress and she and her two friends actually had their own um, business. It's where I learned entrepreneurialism, yeah. you know, it was really through her. She and her two friends had a, a seamstress business. They actually did all the embroidery and monogramming. If you remember Gattles, Gattles. still around for yes. fine linens. Mm -hmm. I kind of t say she was really the Martha Stewart before Martha Stewart. She was into interior design. She cooked, she baked, um, you know, she, she did it all. She was a Renaissance woman, but mm -hmm. it was without an education. And my grandfather was a longtime waiter at the Marymount Inn um, oh, in Cincinnati sure. as well. So, you know, I grew up on with that, but they also were very into education. They worked mm -hmm. to send their son and their daughter to, to mm -hmm. school, the long legacy of Miami of Ohio college grads. Yes. And, um, and, you know, so it was important, even if they didn't have, even if they didn't have it, mm -hmm. but yes, the expectation to excel and succeed in, in college and in university and beyond very, very strong. Very strong. Very strong. Yeah. By sounds like uh, both sides of your family. And we're going to talk about perfectionism, but I want to first talk about, I love the story about your Sunday dinners when you would drive over from Indianapolis uh, here in Cincinnati to see family and talk about the uh, New York Times and uh, what the practice mm -hmm. was there on Sunday dinners. <laughs> sure. So um, as you said, we were in Indianapolis, but my all of my grandparents were in Cincinnati as well as my extended family. And we, we literally, when I was a child, came to Cincinnati every weekend. One, because we would go to church in Cincinnati. Um, as I said, I have a legacy of family ministers. And so there, our family church was in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. um, but on Sunday morning, right after church, um, my dad 
dad loved the Sunday New York Times, just how big and thick it was. And each of us were asked to always, you know, take a section and read an article. And you really almost prepared. It was our own kind of model UN, our debate at the dining room table, where um, each each child came with an article and you debated a, a, the story that you read in terms of why it was good or why you supported the story. And everybody at the table asked questions. And then once you finished that, you kind of had a drink and took a, some nibbles of food. And then you debated the other side. You had to then support the other side. And so it was a lot about, again, kind of opening up your mind, intellectual curiosity, having multiple perspectives, being able to see both sides, um, you know, and and making sure that we were all very confident in our voice. And I think that really helped me with critical thinking, with creative problem solving. And um, and I love those times. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I love those days. And I learned a lot from that, from my sisters who were debating when I was debating. Mm. And I still read the Sunday New York Times that way. Um, it is still a, a ritual on Sunday where mm-hmm. you read everything and um, and I talk to my husband and my daughter about it or my sisters and um, it's it's very important but I think that really is the foundation of my creative problem solving at work mm-hmm. for sure and open-mindedness you know to look at the other side and when you have to debate the other side you know I think it can open your mind not only the intellectual curiosity about it but and, and staying aware of current events and things but just that open-mindedness yes. Yes. It was funny. I told that story when I was being interviewed by my boss. We were on a panel and we were talking just about, you know, again, how we grew up. And and when I once I told that story, he was like, now I get you. He was <laughs> like, you know, there are times in meetings where, you know, we're talking about a, a, you know, a case or a subject and you're very much leaning this way. But then if someone else says something, you've listened intently and then you start leaning the other way. And sometimes we just don't know where you stand. And, and I thought that that was just very interesting. He was like, but now I get you. Now I understand. And I think it is that open-mindedness. And it actually, again, has allowed me, I think where I'm, you know, m- one of my superpowers is really being able to create something out of nothing, really being able to say, how do we evolve to new business models, really being mm-hmm. open to that, dealing with ambiguity, not being afraid um, to create something new. And it all goes back to to those times at the dinner table, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I have that, too. I, I like to create thing, something from nothing um, and look at things differently and, and create. I mean, I did that with the podcast. I've done it with starting yes. a company. I mean, yes. it it, uh, it really gives me a lot of juice and adrenaline. Um, so, and I love it, but it, I don't, I don't, con- you know, I'm not one of these people that turn the crank, you know, okay, let's go back in and do the same thing every day. I'm always looking for new ways to do it better. Oh, Susan, I'm I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And one of the other things I'm sure you might have done this as well. I, I sometimes feel really lucky that I work for a large corporation because I say, oh my goodness, I'm I am an entrepreneur with all of the resources and the safety net of a large corporation. Mm-hmm. This is like wonderful. Because if I were on my own doing it, I would have been bankrupt today. You yeah. know, I would come home and literally <laughs> say that to my husband. But that was one of my mentors again early on saying, you know, you don't necessarily have to have the title of CEO, but every role that you have, you should act as if you are the CEO of mm-hmm. that business. That's right. And um, I, I I really believe in that. And I believe, again, if this is like your own company, you really have that entrepreneurial mindset for right. as well. Yeah. Other women in the podcast have had the same experience where they're with these big companies, but they're with this 
sm- you know, subsidiary or smaller division of that company, and yes. they're responsible for it. So they can be entrepreneurs without necessarily the financial risk. Yes, yeah. yes. But still, you know, you're responsible and accountable to that P&L. You always have to deliver, yes. you know, the target. So definitely, definitely it is still about business mm-hmm. impact, business growth, and again, delighting, you know, the stakeholders and the audiences that you're serving for mm-hmm. sure. Sure. But it's exciting that way. You learn a lot. Yeah, for sure. You and I talked about perfectionism, I think, um, and how you've looked at it, how it's it can get in the way of uh, excellent work. I always say, you know, don't do, you don't have to do perfect work. It just has to be excellent, you know, but I think um, women, you know, can tend to uh, get into the perfectionist trap. Um, and I've, I've been in it that th- my work has to be perfect and talk about perfectionism and how, how it's played into your, your career in life. Yes. So, you know, it's interesting because I, I never thought that I was trying to be perfect. I thought what I was trying to do was meet the expectations of my family. And again, that kind of excellence is expected. And it's when you have, you know, the, your great friends, or as we say, sometimes the board of directors or those that really like hold the mirror up to you. And, and, and frankly, even an executive coach, I, I always tell everyone, you know, the, the gift a company can give you as an executive coach, it's when you have those types of stories and conversations where they say, and you take different tests. We were talking about the Enneagram test, you know, and I came up as a one in terms of being a perfectionist. And it's, it's funny because I still today kind of like reject that a bit. I say, well, you know, that one is both a perfectionist and a reformer. I'm really more the reformer (laughs) side, you know, I'm really more about the integrity and the ethics. And as we talked about making things better, but you know, then, then an executive coach or dear friends say, no, Janice, you know, it's about being a perfectionist. (laughs) You know, you need to you need to get over that. You need to accept it and get over it. And so, um, as I said, I've been trying to be very intentional about the importance of excellence, excellence in execution, the importance of bringing your best self mm. um, to work every day, being your best self in, in life. And um, Corn Ferry really, um, you know, talks about creating the environment as leaders for all of the those on your team, no matter what their diversity is. Mm-hmm allowing them and empowering them to bring their best self so they can yeah. be that go-to person. And so that's where I frankly and in- intentionally spend a lot of time with my teams trying to inspire, trying to empower, trying to really understand them and to make sure that they can be the best that they can mm-hmm. be. And if I can help inspire that, that's that's exciting. Yeah. I'm uh I've studied the Enneagram at some length and um you are a one which is the perfectionist. I am an eight which is power and control. And I think many people that have been told they're Enneagram types don't, don't want to be that Enneagram type, right? <laughs> like, I'm not at power and control. Yes, you are, Susan. Yes, you, you know. Are. So, I mean, there are very, a lot of benefits to being our types, right? There are a lot of benefits. But where's, where's the growth? Where's the growth edge? Yes. You know, where, where can it get in our ways? You know? Yes, so absolutely. So, that's what I've, I've learned. And I think that self-awareness is so important. You know, I, I think, you know, one of my kind of um, one piece of advice is always know thyself and love thyself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, if you if you 
have the opportunity to know more about yourself? Don't you want to learn more about yourself? Don't you want to be better? Don't you want to actually allow that to make you a better leader, to make you a better mom, to make you a, a better friend? And so, and it allows you, in all honesty, to be true to yourself and to be authentic. Um, and so, I think it's so important to that self learning again, mm-hmm. that lifelong learning. Yeah. And um, and so I I do accept it. I reluctantly sometimes um, have to accept it, but. Uh, I, again, I think it provides great perspective. Yeah, I, I, I see you as, and I've tried to do this as I've in, evolved in life and gotten older and had children and so forth. And that is, and I've said this before on the podcast, you cannot know yourself by yourself. Mm. Uh, people tell you who yeah. you are. And I use an executive coach as well. And sometimes she says things I don't want to hear. She holds yeah. me accountable for things that I have said that are, you know, are important to me. And uh, so I found that to be very good. But it sounds like you're the same way that, y- you know, you can learn, you can hear what other people say. You can hear, you know, that you know, take the test and so forth. But you have to be, embrace it too. Oh, absolutely. You know, you have to say, okay, I hear you. That's maybe who I am and I need to maybe work on some things. That's yeah. when you grow. Absolutely. And I I do think that's about personal development. Um, You know, and I think feedback is a gift. So you you want real-time feedback. Mm -hmm. You want to know. I mean, you can still be authentic, but there may be things that you do need to calibrate and you do Mm -hmm. need to work on. And, um, you know, I I, I think that's really important. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I I learned kind of growing up, especially with women and with Black women, there was a program called PI. It was around performance, image, and exposure. And so I think for so many of us, we think, you know, hey, if we just perform incredibly well, like everyone will see it and we'll get promoted, kind of the meritocracy mm-hmm. philosophy. But that's that's not what it's all about. There are other pieces to how people are looking at you, critiquing you, considering you, um, evaluating you. And that image piece is so important, just as we were talking about. So knowing who you are, knowing that you need to work on things, how are you perceived, um, you know, in the marketplace? or at your company or with your team or with your peers is really important. And then mm-hmm. clearly the exposure piece as well, that gets into sponsorship and that gets into, you know, who are those advocates that are out there making sure that they are telling your story in addition to you telling your story in a really positive way for, for you to succeed in advance. Yes, absolutely. Your you are, as we said, a Black woman, a woman of color. You're passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and you support organizations within your company um, around color and women uh, in medicine and health. So talk about that. Talk about your work there. Yes. I, I, you know, I, again, I love having a career with a purpose. I love having a career where I can make a difference in the world and the community and in the place where I work. And we have the opportunity here to um, actually marry um, all, all of what I'm excited about when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So one is, you know, just, just within our company, we talk about the importance of be yourself and change the world. And again, we give everyone the opportunity to do that. So, um, and we do have DEI specific initiatives that all of our leaders in, in the company need to tie themselves to, not only the metrics, but how are you driving that in our organization and outside of our organization? So, 
I'm really proud of our employee resource groups. I'm proud to be an African ancestry, um, you know, leadership ex- leader executive as part of our ALC, um, part of the Women's Leader Initiative, um, and out talking and trying to identify and recruit talent that's diverse, be it gender or race, women, um, people of color. That's really important. As part of my role, it's about um, cultivating an inclusive and diverse health workforce. So I work with National Medical Fellowships, a a wonderful not-for-profit organization that really focuses on underrepresented uh, medical students and making sure that they get all the support that they need in medical school so they can frankly go back into their communities and provide health around Hmm. whole health equity, um, which to me is incredibly important. Um, I'm a part of our of the Executive Leadership Council, which is a, a large organization of, of Black leaders, people of color leaders across many corporations. And we do many things, but Johnson & Johnson, again, they are also sponsors, scholarships of those and their getting their MBAs or their PhDs in, in business. And we sponsor about 10 scholars there. We sponsor about 20 scholars as part of NMF um, on, a, an, on an annual basis. And so not only sponsoring them, but actually meeting with them, being mentors to them, being coaches to them, um, showing them the way. I think that's mm-hmm. so important. Um, what do you, Yeah, and I'm on my DEI, my company's DEI committee, and um, we talk about hiring you know, you know, does our workforce, do our employees mirror our communities? And we have to say, no, they don't. How do you change that? What do you think the biggest challenges to companies are to make sure there is diversity within the workforce? Not only that, but real belonging and, and opportunity. There, there's, you know, hiring, but then belonging and opportunity. What do you think the biggest challenges to companies are? Yeah, I think, you know, especially because I think it's that retention and people will stay and grow and develop if they do feel like they belong, if they do feel like they can be themselves, if they do feel that this culture of belonging allows them to um, the potential to do great things um, individually and as part of a team and as part of a company. So um, for for me, I, I spend a lot of time like with the onboarding. So once folks have been recruited and I definitely go out, I've been out to the Black MBA and Nishimba conferences and many, many conferences more than I probably can count at this point. Mm-hmm. But it's like, once you come in, how do we really successfully onboard um, this right. talent? Right. Um, women and people of color, are we setting them up for success? Mm-hmm. Are we talking to their managers about how how to make sure and ensure that they're successful. Are we talking to their managers about what it means to really, again, advocate and sponsor that person? It's always incredible to me sometimes when you get in the room for performance reviews and calibration and when you get to the woman or the person of color and people around the table say, I I don't know that person. I don't know that person. And it's like, you don't know that person. And so, and if the, if that manager um, isn't standing up for that person, you know, then, then that person's not going to have the same opportunities as those candidates who everybody in the room knows instantly. So yes. Um, I, I think, you know, what does it take for, for, the, for women and for people of color to be successful in organizations? And that may mean our managers, our mainstream Caucasian managers, having to change some of their ways and perceptions and managing unconscious bias as well. Yes. And so a lot of it is about talking about that. What is it going to yeah. take to really retain great talent? Right. What is it going to take to unleash their potential? And having tough conversations, you know, the 
white male that is now managing a person of color or woman or a woman of color, you know, what what does she see as what her needs are to feel belonging and opportunity? Yes. She needs to talk to him. He needs to talk to her. It has to, it can't just be her. It can't just be the company or yes. him. It has to be a conversation, you know, yes. and, and talk about these things. Absolutely. Two-way yeah. dialogue. And and again, making sure that that new person coming in has um, a, a support network, um, a support network of people who also are women and and women of uh, and people of color, but also, again, Caucasian males and sponsors. I mean, there's so much that we can do to make sure that we are setting folks up for success, that they, they are contracting work in the right ways, that they have been introduced to all of the great influencers in the company, that they really know what their expectations are the expectations are for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we just need to be so transparent about that. Why should that be a secret? Or mm-hmm. why should only some people know that? Everyone should be very clear right. when they walk in. Mm-hmm. The transparency. Yeah. Um, last question for you here. Um, I've had the experience that, um, you know, speaking up, having my voice. And I'm often in a room of all men. and um, I have found that, uh, you know, there may be a view that's brought up. I bring up a different view, a different opinion, and I have found myself uh, shut down, um, that uh, I'm glossed over, I'm ignored, and then they go on to maybe a man that's sitting next to me or whatever. And in my way, as an Enneagram 8, I speak up and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, (laughs) what about me? Um, and, And I found that. You know, I have been I have been called aggressive. I have been called uh, difficult. Um, Barbara Turner, who is a woman of color who heads Ohio National Financial Services here in Cincinnati, said she had been called hostile, and she didn't b- believe that she would have been hostile. It's just that you know, people, uh, you know, what is your experience about speaking up as a woman, as a woman of color? Talk about that. Sure. Um, I, I think you have to speak up. I think if you have, um, if you are in the room, if you have a seat at the table, you you always want your voice to be heard um, because you wouldn't have been invited to the meeting. And I say that to anyone. It doesn't have to be a woman or a person of color. I say that if you are invited to the meeting and you have a seat at the table, we want you to contribute. And I, and I feel like I have um I have inside of me the drive to contribute. I want to add value. Um, I want to contribute. I want to to make sure that we can advance whatever we're talking about. Not so I can be right, but to do what's right for our business and for those that we serve. Mm-hmm. And so I think with that intention, you know, you you have to speak. And I I too, you know, I sometimes get those mixed messages of Janice, we love your high energy and your passion, but you know, that also can be, you know, a towering, you know, development opportunity. You wear your emotions on your sleeve, you know, or you really are such a fast learner, but you can't be the smartest person in the room. So why don't you stay quiet to give others time to find mm. the answer? Uh, and it's like, I need to be quiet so others can find the answer. Or, and I have exactly what you've had, Susan, where you say something, I say something, and 
people kind of gloss over it. And then the, the person, another person says it and they go, that's fantastic. And the I'm man. Like, I just, I just said that the man and I, it used to upset me. And now I just say, you know what, as long as I can kind of put it in the air and in the atmosphere, even if someone else gets credit for it, again, it's not about me being right. If it's the right thing to do for our business mm-hmm. and for our stakeholders, then mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I at least put it out there. And yeah. um, that's important. Yeah. That's very team play of you. Um, you know, and I think uh, I probably, go out with wanting to get credit for the idea, right? And uh, so make sure that, hey, does everybody know that I I had this idea, whatever. And this comes up a lot in the podcast where uh, women speak up in a meeting. We don't hear her. We hear the man who comes up with the same idea. Um, So, but I think it's uh, what you're talking about is important, which is what's your intention? Your intention is not to say, hey, Janice is right. Janice has this great idea. Um, but that what is what is our goal here? And that is to yeah. really recognize our stakeholders and the company and stay stay there, right? Yes, yes. And I do think that we also need to speak when when, as you said, the example that you talked about, when you feel like you are misunderstood. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as you said, you know, I, I find sometimes that I think I have an assertive voice, and others describe it as aggressive or forceful. <laughs> I've even gotten back like threatening. I'm like threatening. You know, or when I think I'm raising my voice with excitement, you know, others are like, she's yelling, you know, I'm like yelling. So it's like, (laughs) how can I be so misunderstood? So I think one of the things I've learned from an executive coach is sometimes you have to describe, you know, the feelings that you have. Sometimes you need to tell others like why you feel this way or to say, you know what? I'm really excited by this and here's why, or, you know what, this is something that concerns me and here's why. And so it's part of our storytelling, you know, it's part of, again, our our personal brand, but sometimes doing that, I think kind of lowers the emotional or the reaction level Mm -hmm. and then people can hear you. So I also think in order to have, you know, your voice, you need to be a generous listener. And that's, that's something that I definitely practice as well. If you want to be heard, you have to also listen first. Yeah. Um, So you do. And it's not, it's not easy always, but you have to actively listen to what others are saying. But really sometimes our, I think our passion comes through, you know, what other, others may see as being aggressive or loud, you know, is just really our passionate about, about what we're doing. Right. Yes. And, uh, and that takes you so far, but then sometimes, you know, I mean, when you're, when it's, it switches sometimes when you're managing people or again, it's, it's culture dependent or situation dependent. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, this, that calibration and that perspective. Mm-hmm. And what's wrong important. with being the smartest person in the room? <laughs> I never thought there was anything bad about it. There's nothing I'm, wrong with yeah. that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it allows you, I mean, to, again, to me, that's part of helping create the the next generation and, and of future leaders. You yeah. know, I, I hope that I, as a mentor, as a sponsor, I can impart some knowledge and, and lift others up and mm-hmm. allow them to soar. And yeah. so that's part of my role as well, I think, as a leader. No, I'm sure you are. And I'm sure you are a model uh, to the women of your company and and men, uh, just a model um, executive and uh, to uh, women of color and I'm sure to your daughter. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, I, that means a lot when someone would say that. Yeah. So yes, to me, I want her to be incredibly proud of me. So yeah, and sure hopefully be um, hopefully be, you know, motivated and inspired by mm-hmm. what I do. So mm-hmm. it allow her to do whatever she wants to do. Yeah, I hope she has that confidence yeah. to do what she wants to do. 
She's my target audience, so tell her about LeadingShe.com. <laughs> Will do. Will do. Absolutely. Yeah. Janice, thanks for joining me today. It's been great getting to know you and talking to you today on Leading She. Thank you so much, Susan. This has been a lot of fun and a yeah. real pleasure. And I've learned a lot about you. And uh, I'm looking forward to listening to more Leading She podcasts. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders. 